Welcome to Vets to PM's Military Transition Academy podcast, the show where we discuss how to succeed in transitioning from the military service to the civilian workforce. This show and the academy it represents helps veterans transition into meaningful, lucrative post-service careers. Your primary host is Eric Doc Wright, PhD, Certified Manager, Military Veteran, Serial Founder, Best-Selling Business Author, Philosopher, Linguist, and Coach. Your other host is Jeremy Burdick, Project Management Professional, Scrum Master, Product Owner, and Retired Air Force Chief, and the current COO of Vesta PM and the Professional Development Unit University, where we will interview veterans successful in corporate America and business to bring you nuggets of wisdom every episode to make you more successful. Next, let's introduce today's guest. Our special guest today is Caleb Dottie, and he's an armor and cavalry officer from 2009 to 2018 with roles as a tank platoon leader, infantry XO, battalion S4, and troop commander for the air assault cavalry troop. After transitioning, Caleb worked in a chemical manufacturing and power generation industry, and he is the owner of a company that does lean transformation and training for the American sewing industry. I'm super excited for you guys to hear what he's got to say. Very high energy and, you know, it's, it's a really unique field that we discuss, but there's a lot more in what he's got to say. Let's get started. So, yeah, Jeremy and I were talking about just, just you know, your awesome story and what you do and your passion and stuff and your just the, the myriad of stuff you've done in your background, dude. It's just, I, I mean, if that in and of itself is not an absolute beacon and blueprint for all the brothers and sisters coming off after us, dude, I don't know what is, man. Like, so, so, you know, so I, so, uh, we lost you right as you were starting to tell some good stuff and the energy and everything, man. So what were you, what were you getting ready to enlighten us with my friend? <laughs> Fantastic. No, I appreciate it. And I completely agree with that assessment. One of the biggest things that's exciting to me is once you leave the military, uh, coming to terms with the sheer grasp of the amount of things you can do, um, because there's not one path that you're on. I, I know for me, I was an armor officer and the army sort of defines like as an armor officer, you can do two things. You can be a tanker, you can be a cash cow. And those are two very different things and they were unique and I love doing them. And then when you get out, it's like, okay, now you're a civilian, you could do 20 billion things. <laughs> like, or you can make your completely own path that no one has walked before. Like it's up to you, go figure it out. Um, so one of the things that I was immediately drawn to, and I, I really, as going through your program was a part of this, is manufacturing. Um, manufacturing is something I am deeply passionate about. Um, and as I left the military, it was one of the things that I was just laser focused on doing. Um, because in many ways, I feel like being in American manufacturing right now is every bit as critical to your service to the country as being in the military is. We it's a dying both. art, dude. It used, it's what we built the country on, part Absolutely. of it, the pioneering, and right? It's a dying art. American manufacturing, you said that 10, 15 years ago, and people were like, now? Like, that's a badge of honor, dude. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, 100% agree with you. But I, I will slightly disagree with I don't think it's a dying art. I think it's a regrowing art. Good, good, good. Because, a resurging. Yeah, a resurgent art. Absolutely. Because it was a art that suffered massive damage through the 90s, through the early 2000s. But there are strong tailwinds right now bringing manufacturing back to the United States. One of the things that sort of shocked me is how much of it was still here. 
I think we didn't give enough. I think this this narrative of manufacturing was dying was so oppressively everywhere that it discouraged talent from moving in. And there was certainly a kernel of truth behind manufacturing is dying more than a kernel. There was a mountain of truth behind manufacturing of dying. But it was never quite as bad as the sort of narrative seemed. I know when I got out, one of the after I initially went to work for DHL doing um, chemical supply chain operations, so we were working a big chemical plant up there in Kentucky. Um, I did that through Vets Do PM. I did that through Hiring Our Heroes. That was the program I was in. After that, though, I went to General Electric Company, um, and we were making the heavy duty gas turbines. And one of the things that was sort of really impressive to me from, again, having that same idea of American manufacturing is dead, is you walk into those big GE plants and you're like, no, this is still one of the best factories in the world. (laughs) This never left. This, because it's the sort of incredibly high-end infrastructure piece that they always kept in America. There's a plant right here in Greenville, South Carolina, where I'm sitting that I used to work in for, for quite a while before I left and started my own company. And it's like 40 to 45% of all of the electrical generation in the world comes from a turbine that came out of that plant. Um, Because it doesn't matter whether it was hydroelectric, it doesn't matter whether it was natural gas, it doesn't matter whether it's coal, it doesn't even matter if it's wind, it all is going to go through a turbine and that turbine has to be made to very high standards. And the Chinese tried to copy it. It didn't work well for them. (laughs) Because it turns out you can steal the plan if you can't do the, the craftsmanship, you don't have a unit. So again, dude, it's it's a, think about what you're talking about. We're talking about stuff gets talked about way up here at these big, broad, macroeconomic complex thing. Man, at the end of the day, it's all XO block and tackle stuff, it dude. Exactly. It doesn't matter what kind of energy you're talking about. It's got to go from a turbine because it's got to go from wind, solar, coal, like whatever it started life as. Something has to transform it into something you could put in your hair dryer or your, you know, your cell phone charger, like whatever it is, man, that takes ingenuity, that takes hands, that takes smarts, that takes manufacturing. I mean, dude, JB, did you realize that we are talking to a Renaissance man? Yeah, man. I talked to him the other day and I was, I mean, I was pretty impressed how, um, one energetic he is, but two, um, it makes me look low energy, right? Well, yeah. I thought, man, get these two together and we're just going to have a show, but you know, but two, it's just the the way he thinks about things, right? So you, you know, you, we're calling something dead. He's saying it's a resurgence, right? Because he's seeing it from the inside of manufacturing. Like so, my in my mind, we're seeing everything ships overseas because we're worried about you know profit margin, right? Uh, marginal analysis. What's the marginal cost? You know, what's the marginal revenue? Can I, how, how can I create more in there? Well, if it's cheaper to make it in Thailand or Bangladesh, let's go do that. Well, maybe you need high quality. Maybe you need something of critical craftsmanship uh, to specs that are, you know, tighter tolerance than could be worked, or maybe the supply chain fails you and you can't get your stuff off of that ship for six months. It's going to affect you. And maybe that's why we shouldn't make nationally strategic impacting decisions based on four anecdotes. Maybe that's why scientific research method takes decades and decades and decades to either prove that some shit works or some shit doesn't work. Think about it. What do we do? Inside of two or three decades, we went global. Well, what'd that do to the supply chain globally? What'd that do to COVID? Something starts over wherever it started. I don't know where it started. I don't care where it started, right? Something starts somewhere. And because we're all globally linked now, guess what? Yeah, butterflies wings. Flapped its wings in the Southern Hemisphere and in the North Pole, nine days later, dude, that place was getting hammered. You know what I mean? Like, 
So, hey, we should ship everything overseas. Cool. Until we shipped it overseas and nobody here controls any of it. Like, so Caleb, that's really insightful to hear, dude, that, that not all CEOs, that not all companies, not all boards, not all American manufacturing pioneers said, you know what? Yeah, let's just ship it all out of here. Absolutely. It's great to hear that somebody said, yeah, let's, let's keep the high tech stuff right here. So we, we can make some stuff here. That's beautiful, dude. Absolutely. And it's more than just the high tech stuff. So the further I've gone into this, the more I'm sort of amazed by how much stuff still does get made here. And, and one of the, it, it's the flip side of both encouraging and discouraging me, to me, especially in my current role where I work, I'm a process engineer that goes into sewing factories. That's what I do now. And there's a lot more of those than you think. And I walk in there and I see like, you guys are doing amazing stuff. Why does no one talk about this? Why do you not have the governor in here instead of all those other weird places they're going to? Because you've been like, give you an example. I was in Chicago three weeks ago um, in one of the oldest manufacturers in Chicago. So they started literally the Wild West stockyards. They were taking the leather from the cows that were being killed in the Chicago stockyards, turning those into aprons and gloves and safety gear and shipping finished goods back to the east. They're still there. They're still employing 400 people in the city of Chicago, not in the outskirts, in Chicago. And I walk in there and the, the first thing that jumps out is that this is a industry in massive need of modernization because it looks like they're still doing things like it's the 1920s. But we can fix that. That's why I'm here. That's why they called me. That's what we're, we're doing. We're going to bring in modern manufacturing techniques. We're going to get at some things um, set up for them. But the second thing that jumps out is why are you guys not getting the attention? Why are you guys not taking advantage of apprenticeship programs? Why are you guys not getting some of the political impact that you guys need? Because there's sort of, because I'm not going to lie to you for all the optimistic uh, optimism I'm expressing here, manufacturing in the United States is hard. For all of the things Jeremy just talked about is not wrong. Company owners do have to make a profit. I am still a capitalist. Yes, I love things being made in the United States. I love like high paying jobs here. But I also know that companies need to make money because I own a company. I know I need to make money. I know what that entails. So I want to support those guys. I want to see it. it's done. And we've seen some amazing things in here, some stories we don't talk about enough. So the company that I bought last year, um, we're America's 21st. We've been around for 30 years. Um, and what we do is we put in a lean form of manufacturing method that was actually taken from the Toyota production system. So everyone has heard of TPS. Well, TPS has a little brother that no one's heard of. And that's called TSS, the Toyota sewing system. And what happened, and this is, let me, let me wildly side trail here, but I, I promise I'll come back. This is why we, we went this way. So when Toyota created the Toyota production system, one of the very first things that happened, and we like presenting it in these books like this was an immediate success and there was no friction and everything was beautiful the moment you created it. No, they immediately ran into a catastrophic issue with their supply chain because they wanted to start making cars single piece flow. They wanted to start making cars in batch production. They wanted just in time manufacturing. And they look over for the companies that are making their upholstery, the companies that are making their liners, all of the companies that are providing parts for that. And they just got this confused look in their faces. Like, so do you want me to drop off 10,000 seat covers or not? Like, we don't get it. We don't understand what you're trying to do with the Toyota production system. So what Toyota did is 
they sent engineers into those sewing companies that were providing it as like, we're going to get you to produce the same way we produce. We're going to be efficient. And therefore they created the Toyota sewing system, which is how you sew in a modern lean manufacturing method. So one of the big changes they do is they take all the chairs away, they stand everyone up and let each worker have as many machines as they need to do their job. One of the biggest limiting factors in traditional sewing is if I'm sitting in front of a sewing machine that only does one thing, then that's the only thing I can do without getting out of my chair and going somewhere else. But if I give you as many sewing machines as you need to do as much work as you can do all day, so now I can use three different sewing machines that are specialized for three different things, then I can produce things faster. So that's what Toyota did with the Toyota sewing system. And this is back in the 1980s. And just like the Toyota production system, this was applicable to a lot more than just cars. So in 1988, it was actually the president of Reese Corporation, which is a company that made sewing machines in the United States. Um, Reese Corporation went extinct. They ran out of money. They stopped existing because all of these giant American sewing companies were going under very fast. And Greenville, South Carolina, where this place got started, is the historical hub of textile production in the American South. This is where all the mills were. And so you had all of these very talented, very qualified people losing their jobs in this massive manufacturing apocalypse around 1988, 1989. So they send a team of the executives of these companies who are now laid off, go over to Japan, learn TSS, bring it back to the United States and say, hey, if we can do this well, we can keep jobs in the United States. Very, very difficult market, but there was a huge amount of success. So the companies that managed to modernize in time stayed in business. So that company I just mentioned in Chicago, the reason I was there is because they just got bought out by one of my customers, one of those customers that transferred over in the early 1990s. And not only did they survive the sewing apocalypse, they grew and they bought out a lot of people because I've got a customer that makes fire suits, the suits that firemen wear in. They make them in Cleveland and they, yeah, they make them in Cleveland, Ohio. They pay like $34 an hour to their workers. They sell their suits for the same amount that suits are sold for that are made in Mexico. And the American one has better profit margins because they're, they're <laughs> making them for cheaper because they're that much more efficient in Mexico. They're paying their workers $6 an hour, but they have to have 10 times as many of them to make the same number of suits. So paying an American worker $34 an hour is a bargain because it's half the labor price. And it's higher quality, which means higher and it's higher service, quality. which means more sales on repeat. Absolutely. Contracts. And that's what I mean by I'm still a capitalist. I don't believe you should keep, I, I, and this is, this is where I may be a little controversial. I don't believe any industry should stay in the United States out of sheer patriotism. You should stay in the United States because you should be doing better here. Amen, and if you're brother. not, if you're not doing better here, why? Because if we are what we say we are, and I firmly believe we are, then you should be able to make it here in the United States. It's, it shouldn't necessarily be easy, but there are advantages to being here. We have a staggering amount of natural resources. We have an incredibly talented labor pool. We've got the tools we need. And I don't want to see someone keeping manufacturing in the United States if it's better to move it overseas. I want them keeping it in the United States because it's literally better to be here. And it can be. But you boil all that down, Caleb. What I heard you say is, hey, it's all about your perspective and it's all about your humility or ego level. 
Can you look at the battlefield for what it really is, spend the first four years getting your ass kicked, and then when you decide to engage the bad guy, you win. And the revolutionary is complete, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, see it for what it is, figure out how to pivot, and not only survive, but thrive, man. What a cool story, dude. Oh, 100%. And that, that first part you said is so key. Of spend that first year getting your ass kicked. That is important. It really is. Like, I jumped right. Like, when I'm getting out, I'm talking to all my buddies that are like, oh, no, we're going to go consulting for this. Like, there's money everywhere. They're having these conferences in Vegas. We're going to be making $120,000 a year. It's going to be fantastic. And they weren't lying. That was really the way the market was. And I'm like, I'm going to go into manufacturing. I'm going to make half of what you make. I'm going to get my ass kicked because it's hard. It is. There's layoffs like crazy. Like there's, it is a difficult environment to work in, but I'm a big believer that a good leader finds the right problems. Like that's the key. Are you working on fixing the problems that are really problems? Because I don't care if you're a genius, if you're creating answers to things that are problems, you're useless. You got to create answers to things that are problems. And this is one of the big areas that is a problem because, and, and COVID just showed this so much because of those breakdown of global supply chains. And uh, I think it was Warren Buffett that said, you know, when the tide goes out, you get to see who's swimming without clothes. <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's exactly what happened to so many of these manufacturers of we were moving through a supply chain that was much more fragile than anyone thought about. And my question is, well, who is trying to fix that supply chain? I'm seeing so many problems in these industries that I'm not seeing anyone trying to answer it. And that's really why I reached out to you guys, because one of the to, to bring this all the way around <laughs> yeah, and crypto and everything else um, to bring this all the way around back to why I reached back out to Vets PM. One of the things that I have seen in every industry I've been in so far, I saw it in the chemical manufacturing industry, I saw it in power generation and production, I saw it in power distribution, I've seen it in sewing, and sewing is really a conglomeration of about 40 different industries, everything from parachutes to underwear. Uh, <laughs> but in each of these industries, there's one critical thing that sticks out, and that is trade skills. That is where not the managers, because the truth is I can go out and I can hire an engineer tomorrow. I can hire a production manager tomorrow. I can hire an HR specialist tomorrow, but I cannot hire a sewing machine mechanic ever. <laughs> I'm going to have to train them. These rare in-demand keystone trade skills are suffering because the average age of a mechanic when I walk into a plant is between 55 to 60. Because we haven't been training them. And we've been telling people for three decades now, go to an overpriced yes. college, spend more years than you need to, and everybody do IT. IT for everybody and their brothers. Yep. Well, guess what? Nobody can unclog a toilet. Nobody can fix a sewing machine. Nobody can put a roof shingle back on a house. Why? Because we're all waiting for an IP port to go down so we can fix that cool shit. Absolutely. And don't get me wrong. I love IT techs. I really I do. do. But you can't just have IT techs. You hit the nail on the head. So that, that's like right now. So in this room right next here, I'm teaching a class for new sewing machine mechanics. And the way I've done this is I've recruited two very senior mechanics. Both of them have been doing this for about 30 years, but they hadn't been training people. 
And so we put together a curriculum and we put together a class. And now I've got three young people over there and two older people teaching them, mentoring them, training mechanics. And as I'm talking to one of these mechanics named Tim, fantastic guy, he's like, yeah, I told my son not to do this. He's like, I told him there was no future. I told him that back in the 90s. But I was like, don't follow me down this way because I don't think there's going to be a job for you. And he's like, and now I'm looking back in this 20 years later. It's like, I was wrong. <laughs> and we need to train some people and tell me where I can help. Tell me who I can teach. Because if you know how to fix a sewing machine, you will never be out of a job unless what, you want to be. What an amazing story. And, and what, you know, and, and like you said, I mean, I don't, you know, I, we don't get the rest on our loyals, but, but, or laurels, but man, the American spirit, find problems, solve problems, pioneer, push boundaries. Like that's, and, and, and I think that fits with what Dan Airely and a lot of other business professors would tell you that, you know, the, everybody talks about the quiet quitting and stuff. Well, people are becoming disengaged and apathetic because we want to wake up every day and make a contribution to the society and our communities and our tribes and feel like what we do matters to people. And yes, we don't get that anymore, but manufacturing, Hey, that machine was broke as shit when i showed up i used my knowledge my experience my skills and my awesome set of tools and i fixed that sewing machine and that company's now making money again bang man absolutely and, and that right there was the perfect encapsulation of why i wanted to be in manufacturing because when i was at ge i did some other stuff so i was in their like c-suite level finance thing for a while crunching excel spreadsheets every day like doing all that finance stuff and i could do it like I wasn't a complete failure at it. I did okay. But man, I, I just went home every day feeling like I didn't contribute much because I moved things from column A to column Z41. And then I ran algorithms and then there was an issue with the algorithm. So I fixed it and ran it again. And at the end of the day, I'd go home asking, is anyone ever going to read that Excel PowerPoint I put together? Probably not. Like it, it's important in theory, right? But now, like, I go to this plant and I'm like, hey, guess what? You were making 80 sets of gloves a day. Now you're making 140 gloves a day. I can see the difference. Guess what? There are more gloves ready to go on shelves because I know you're selling more gloves than you can make. Now you've closed that gap. Now you can make enough product to fill your market demand. I can see what we did. Like, I love manufacturing for that sort of rewarding feedback. So there's a company that I, I normally don't name my companies here, but this one you probably will have heard of because they're very good at marketing and I know they would appreciate this. Um, so Allegiance Flag Supply down in Charleston. We just work with them all year. Um, we put in their new manufacturing system. Like this is a, a startup from a bunch of people that were very good at marketing. They were very good in the sort of executive space and they wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to go out and get in manufacturing and make something. And if you want to talk iconic, like the American flag, um, and what a lot of people don't know is about 93% of all of the large American flags are actually made here in the United States. So there's this rumor that they all get brought in from China. It's about 6% of them. Like the majority of them are made here in the United States. So they create this startup and they're building the American flag 100% here out of American textiles, using American sewers. They're making high quality American flags. And it is just so rewarding working with these guys because it's not easy. Every time I walk into that plant, there's dozens of challenges that have to be solved, but we do solve them. 
And that's the exciting, rewarding thing about it. It's not that there's some sort of like rosy ideological idea of, oh, this is great. All you got to do is open it and it'll come. No, there's real hard work that has to be done here. There is real heart to heart discussions that we have to have about, yeah, you can't do it this way. <laughs> you won't make money. But, but once you fix them, that watching the FedEx come, truck come and pick up hundreds of made in America, properly triangle folded American flags that are going out to fly in front of American homes, you go home feeling pretty good about yourself. And it's fantastic. It's, it's real tangible rewards yes. as the direct fruit of real toil. Dude, you yes. gave me goosebumps. I got goosebumps on top of goosebumps, Caleb. I mean, that talk about making a difference every day when you wake up. Yeah, maybe you're not, you know, the armor column isn't taking point X from the bad guy anymore. But dude, you're still making a huge contribution. It's still helping this country and the society and the economy and the individual worker. And I mean, it's, you, you talk about, dude, how could you not want to get out of bed every day and boot up and like lace up and go get it done, man? Absolutely. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm still jealous that I don't have an armor column. <laughs> <laughs> I look at the news and I'm like, damn, I got out of armor too early. <laughs> oh man. Well, great. I mean, that's, I mean, excellent, excellent words really and excellent energy. And how can you not get inspired listening to that? But let's bring it into a, a tangible translation for the military member. Yes. What you may not have heard was, or it skipped over because we were, you know, moving at breakneck speed was if you are trained as a sewing machine mechanic, you almost can't ever become unemployed. That's, some, be, yeah. that's some serious stuff. I mean, when you think about the way the mentality of the normal military person is, we don't necessarily decide whether we're going to go buy something or not on a weekly paycheck basis. It's mostly, hey, I'm enlisted for four years. I'm enlisted for eight years. Uh, you know, I signed a commitment for 10 years as an officer to go be a pilot. So I know I got a job. It maybe is not always the same when you get out. And I'm, I've heard a lot of people, it's the security that they leave behind that they miss. It's not that they're making less money, but they just don't know what to spend because they don't know if it'll be there tomorrow. Sounds like you have a opportunity to put some security in your employment bag if you have the ability and the skills that Caleb's talking about. Yeah, and Jeremy, I, I really appreciate you uh, bringing us in because I have a feeling if me and Doc just go at it, we're going to cover about 40 different topics in uh, about 35 minutes. Um, but no, I, you're absolutely right. And one of the things to, to dial this back to very tangible to the military, one of the things that really was noticeable to me when I transitioned. So I transitioned as a captain. And I immediately saw that there is a lot of opportunities for captains. And then I'm talking to my soldiers that are getting out at E3, E4, and there's not as many opportunities there. And there's a lot more confusion. And I went to some of those job fairs and was very disappointed with the, the quality of jobs they're offering. They're like, do you want to drive a bus? I was like, they're better than that. Like, they can do more than that. Do you oh, want right. to be a financial advisor like there's not i'm not throwing shade at specific jobs here but i know my soldiers i know that's not what they find rewarding that's not what they want to do and many of these jobs don't come with that sort of tangible skills of if you get fired from being a bus driver you may not find another job because there's just not a lot of skills associated with it so the question is 
what can be these sort of roles that are good to transition into? So let's talk just the specific sewing machine mechanics here. And there's a lot more than just here, but it's in sewing machine mechanics. So there are a lot more industries that use sewing machines than I was aware of for sure. And I think most people are aware of because think of everything you use in a day-to-day -day life that has something sewn on it. So your truck covers, you have a boat, there's upholstery in the boat. You got to put a cover over that thing before you stop. Hats, shoes, shirts, flags, parachutes, liners for everything. Insulation gets sewn. Hell, tobacco leaves get sewn together for driving. They have actual industrial sewing machines and tobacco plants. Like there's so much stuff that gets sewn that there are sewing machines all over the place. And then in addition to all of the industrial sewing machines, how many people know someone who has a sewing machine at home? Everyone knows someone who has a sewing machine at home. Your grandma probably has one. Like there's, there's sewing machines in so many houses in the United States. There is, I think the last, uh, and I have no idea if this number is accurate, by the way, so don't quote me on this, but 240 million home sewing machines in the United States alone. And if you, if you know anyone like that as a sewing machine, whether it's, you know, whoever it is in your family, ask them who they have to come take care of it. Because the chances are they have to pay someone a lot of money to drive out to their house, take care of their sewing machine, and they can't find them. Um, and this is, if you're a, someone doing this as just a hobbyist, this isn't a nuisance, but if you're someone doing it professionally, it's a catastrophe. So right next door to where my company is, there's a company that does embroidery. They actually embroidered this shirt right here. They embroidered my company logo on it. They'll embroider police uniforms, everything else. Their sewing machine went down. They don't have a, their, their giant 15 head embroidery machine. So it, it embroiders 15 shirts at a time, just one after another, after another, after another. It's all computerized. That thing went down. They don't have a mechanic on site. They had to wait two weeks to get a mechanic out there. In the two weeks they waited, that machine should have run three quarters of a million dollars worth of pro, uh, uh, product. Now, that's not profit. That's revenue. But three quarters of a million dollars is still a lot of revenue when you're waiting for a mechanic to come fix your machine. Um, so that's what I mean of you'll never be out of business. Whether you want to go, you can be self-employed and you just do home calls. You can be a consulting mechanic that travels around to different industrial plants. Or you can be a full-time working in an industrial um, plant every day. You'll find jobs. And there's always going to be jobs wherever you live in America. There's going to be someone near you that needs this. Um, they may not jump out immediately, but they're going to be there. And not to be the finance guy and make everything about business and financial statements and economics, but let's talk about economics for a second, right? Because ultimately, that's what drives relationships. Hey, Absolutely. I'm going to give you some hard-earned currency, and you're going to give me some goods or services so I can realize the benefits. Okay. So just let me ask you a question. So for everybody out there listening or watching an MTA podcast nation, just let me ask you a question. And I'll do this two plus two equals four style. Okay. So if a machine is down and the company is losing a quarter of a million dollars a month in revenue, and you are the only one in the entire five zip code area with the skills to help them stop that hemorrhage, I think you can kind of set your rates because as long as your rates are less than $250,000 over the next three months, you can have a pretty nice rate, Yeah, but still equal a, a return of 10, 15, 20 X because you're the only cat in the zip code. 
it sounds like a pretty good living. You got some meaning. You got some purpose. Absolutely. You got some nice paychecks. Hmm. Who knew? Absolutely. Yeah. No, the, it, it is a very, it is a career that you can do basically as much or as little work as you you feel necessary to do it. You can find the high paying jobs. You can find, you can constantly be challenged in it too, because a, a sewing machine is not just a sewing machine. Like there are hundreds or thousands of different types of sewing machines that do different things. And you can constantly be learning and you constantly be developing yourself. You want to specialize in those big computerized sewing machines that like look like this crazy Rube Goldberg machine that puts everything together. You can specialize in those. If you want to be the traditionalist that looks, that works in the sewing machines that look like they come out of the 1950s, there's still plenty of those around. So if you take like, let's take some of those niche industries out there. Americans love their horses. And they love putting saddles and bridles and all of this tack on there. And that's a lot of sewing machines that are very, very heavy duty sewing machines. They have needles that look like nails and they run at like two RPM going thunk, thunk, thunk through like 14 layers of horsehide. You want to specialize in that? You'll find a market everywhere there's a saddle maker. And this is the United States. There's a lot of saddle makers around. And saddles and ain't cheap, people man. People to take care of those machines. That's amazing, dude. There's opportunity everywhere. Yes. So no, one's gonna, no one's going to pitch that to you when you leave the military. Like it, that is what it's so important to find your niche because one of the just ways to think about things that, that I tell people all the time, nothing happens by magic. Everything you see around you was made by someone, moved by someone and set up by someone. Those those signs in the wall, somebody mapped that out in a computer program. Someone ran it through a printer. Someone took it off the printer. Someone folded it. Someone put it in a box. Someone listed it for sale. You bought it. You got it. You hung it up. Every step of that was done by someone. And the more rare, like the, the easier it is to do, the easier it is to replace you. Because anyone can fold that thing and put it in a box. But how many people can take care of the printer? <laughs> and, and people talk about like uh, one of my sort of pet peeves is when people talk about automation taking jobs away. Automation sort of takes jobs away. It takes crap jobs and turns them into fewer, better jobs. That's really what automation does. That's what automation does, right? Because people have this idea of like, oh, well, if I'm going to make an automated factory that makes an entire car without a human touching it, my answer is, okay, but you're still going to need like a couple hundred techs to maintain all of those robot arms and solenoids because until someone makes a solenoid that doesn't go bad, <laughs> you're going to need someone to change the solenoid. Um, like that's a real thing. So maintenance careers are incredibly short everywhere, whether you're talking, and I've been talking sewing machines, but there's a lot more than this. People who take care of HVAC machines, my next door neighbor where I live takes care of um, food processing machines that basically take them and shrink wrap them so you can ship them across state lines. Not something you would consider, right? Not something you would think of. But any food you buy anywhere is going to be wrapped in some sort of plastic or paper or something else to keep the bugs and germs off it while they ship it around. So if you are a mom and pop blueberry farm, right, <laughs> then and you want to sell your blueberries further than one county away, then you're going to need one of these machines to take your blueberries, put them in the plastic wrap so you can put them in a truck and you can send them to, to Nashville or Chicago or Atlanta or wherever you're going to sell your blueberries. Well, you're not going to have a full-time employee to take care of that one machine, right? You, you can't. That wouldn't make any sense. 
But if that machine breaks during blueberry harvest season, <laughs> you better have someone in your phone book who can fix that thing, or you got a lot of blueberries that are not going to last for very long. And if you're Tyson Industries and you got 16,000 tons of chickens sitting on that line with the hours counting by until that chicken is going to go in the dumpster, you need that machine fixed. And I'm asking him how many people can take care of those machines. And he told me four for the Eastern seaboard. And, 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 you know, think about those economics too, right? Oh. Four for the Eastern seaboard. That's basic law of supply and demand. Hey, all four of them are busy. Cool. Tyson's going to spend a lot of money replacing a lot of freaking chicken that spoiled. Oh, like yeah. you, they'd have paid nine of those guys a hundred thousand dollars to get there and get that stuff fixed. Right. I mean, it's, and, and you know what? we're doing such a disservice to the economy, right? Like absolutely, we don't send people to college or certificate programs to be a sewing machine mechanic or an HVAC mechanic or a, you know what I mean? Those things are, I mean, I feel like we're doing an episode of, of America works in here. We should have Mike Rowe in here with you, Caleb. I mean, you know what I mean? Like we don't send people to trade schools. We don't send people yeah. to colleges anymore for that stuff. Why? Cause it's not sexy. I'm not the founder of the shrink wrap machine on LinkedIn, right? Nobody gives a shit on LinkedIn. Oh, but I'm a self-help coach. I'm a author. I'm a lead gen magician wizard guy. Like I'm not, again, to use your word, I'm not throwing shade on any of those careers. Right. What I'm saying is, is for every 10 of those, who's fixing the sewing machine? Correct. Where's the founder that's making a couple million dollars uh, a year in revenue and taxes and payroll for the 50 employees they got making shrink wrap machines? How come that guy gets no love? How come that guy gets no love? That's your exactly. point, right? And I know that. And I know that guy. He makes him in Fountain in South Carolina, right? Next to where, <laughs> that's what, who this guy works for. Um because yeah, the, the, the great side of everything you just said is this is a, let me hang that up. Uh, That's your future calling. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, let me like, here's the, here's the great side of this. Like that doesn't take a four-year college degree to do. It takes, here's what, here's what it takes to become that guy who takes care of the shrink wrap machine. It takes a mentor. That's the key here. Because yes, it takes, it takes some initial training, right? It takes like what I'm doing right next door, right here in sewing machine mechanics. I got, I got two experienced mechanics. Oh. We're costing him money, Jeremy. I know. <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. But no, so, so we're doing that initial training, but it's more than just the initial training. It's they leave with the phone numbers they need. They leave with that mentor, that person who they don't work for because that, that's that economic relationship you talked about. It's not the, the friendship, mentorship relationship. It's a neutral party who can then help him talk him through these issues. And it takes someone to help them find that class. It takes someone to tell them that, hey, there is a career in shrink wrapping machines. There's not a thousand careers in shrink wrapping machines, <laughs> but there are some open opportunities and you only need to find one career for yourself. Amen. You don't need to find one that there's 10,000 people going into. It's better for you if you don't. It's better for you if you're in that industry where there's only four people doing it. But here's what happens when I was developing this training program for sewing mechanics and the other ones I'm looking at. I went down to a community college and basically their answer is if I can't put uh, 30 people in a class every semester, I'm not interested because that's their business model. They I don't like the way we do education in America for trade schools because we want to teach classes where I can put a PowerPoint slide in the wall and have one instructor in front of 30 students and just spit knowledge at their faces 
<laughs> right? And hope they absorb something and then kick them out of the class at the end of the day and say, good luck with your life. Because I got to go to the bank and cash checks. I'm busy. Yeah. Because, and, and I get that for, for th that business model, for careers, you can train like that. You can make a lot of easy money, right? But that's not how this sort of career works because I have a class size right now. I've got two people learning and two people teaching. And I can tell you, that is not as lucrative as I would like it to be. But I'm doing more than breaking even. I'm still making a margin. I'm not rolling in that big box of if I could fill up a class of 30. But I can do it profitably. And that's where, like, I want – and the reason why I was looking so hard for this model and why I put so much development on it is I think if you can make doing the right thing profitable, then any competition I get in this is good competition. Right. Because if I can offer this class, if all my competitors start offering this class as well, good, great. Guess what? We're going to get the mechanics the industry so desperately needs. But I'm not doing it at a loss because then I will just feed all my other competitors and they will hire all the mechanics and I'll eat the cost. So I'm not doing that. I'm going to make a profit on this. I need to make a profit on it. But I'm not looking for any wild, crazy profit on this, right? Because the sort of instruction for all of these is it requires that one-on-one -on -one time. It requires that mentorship. And if, if I, we really zoom out like way too far to almost even be useful and just look at how the human race learns for two and a half million years first education system for humans was village blacksmith takes young man with him, teaches him how to be a village blacksmith until old blacksmith dies. Then new blacksmith is a blacksmith. That has been our education model of older generation teaches the young generation, the trade skills they have, the knowledge they have, the wisdom they have. And in our modern idea of education, there are education professionals then my question is, okay, if you're an education professional, where did you get this experience? Because you didn't do the job for 30 years. You're passing on your knowledge of just being a professor. Like, where, where is the actual tangible work experience to be taught to these kids coming out of high school? Because if your only interactions with adults are your parents and teachers, then the only role models you have are either exactly what your parents did or what your teacher's dead. Who's going to be your role model in teaching how to fix HVAC, sewing machines, shrink wrap machines? You want to know another huge one the United States is missing right now? It's our entire electrical grid generation grid. Those blackouts in Cal those fires in California, the blackouts in Texas have one thing in common. They don't have enough people to maintain those transformers. And the government leans over and hits that utility company over the head and says, we told you to fix your freaking equipment. And they look back and say, with who? Because I'm supposed to have 20,000 linemen, and I have 8,000 linemen, and there's only so much overtime you can throw at these guys. Because you've subsidized a system where they teach them all IT or some yes. kind of studies, general studies program that maybe Correct. they, I don't, I'm not throwing shade at those other programs. What I'm saying right. is those other programs don't teach them how to fix transformers and be linemen. Correct. So, and you know, in that Caleb, so you're, you're talking to an old grizzled trades guy here. I used to be a mm -hmm. welder, right? Like, and you know, you're just, it, it, it's reviving words that we don't even use in our vernacular anymore. Craftsman, journeyman, tradesman, yeah. apprentice. You know, when, 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 when 40 years ago, somebody said I was a welder's apprentice, that meant something. 
That yeah. meant some old grizzled smart welder saw enough in me to take me on as a welder. Now I only carried pipe. I only went and fetched another bag of sticks. Like I did the grunt work. Right. But I was somebody's apprentice. Somebody gave a shit. Somebody saw some, they, they didn't see a lump of coal. Somewhere right. in this kid, if I apply enough pressure at the right points and at the right time for the right amount of time, I'm going to create a diamond. And oh, by the way, it'll be the guy that replaces me when they put me in a hole. There right. was something to be said for that. Like you said, there's connection among generations. Like that's that meaning and that purpose is we, we've we've this, this it's, one, it's almost gone. It's almost extinct. Can I take this call real quick? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to put you on pause, but this is an important customer. <laughs> Sorry, I am still trying to run a business here. So. No, no, and we can let um, you go, dude. I mean, I but no, you're that's... no, you're absolutely right, and I, I'm I'm loving this conversation because you're absolutely right with that that transfer of knowledge. What those apprenticeship programs do, they're so vital, they're so needed because those tradesmen make all those other careers you're talking about look so much better. So when I was an engineer over at GE, I will tell you one of the best times you'll ever have as a project engineer is when you have four or five really, really good welders on your team. And you imagine something made out of metal, and then you turn around for five minutes, and it is made out of steel. Like, it is incredible. But that's because, like, GE is one of those things that still has that craftsmanship in their plant. But again, it's the discouraging look around. It was like, okay, I see the 50-year-olds. Where are the 30-year-olds? Where are the people you started training six, seven years ago? Who's replacing you? Because you're all talking about retiring. And yes, this is amazing for right now. And like, it, it is so great when you, you come up with this concept of I'm going to build this rig that's going to hold this turbine head here. And then they, they just look over your shoulder and like, yeah, I can make that. And then they make that. Who did you teach how to do that? Because the only way you're able to turn my little engineer scribbles on a piece of paper into a real physical object that exists in the actual world was decades of experience. So someone needs to be getting started on that because you can't teach that in a classroom. You can't make someone sit through PowerPoints and then they just understand how to weld. Like that's going to take doing the hard work. That's going to take the, the humility you were talking about because before you can be a welder, you have to understand everything that goes into being a welder. And you have to know where you're getting the wire. And when you're getting the wire, guess what you're, you may be frustrated about all the times they're sending you to go pick stuff up out of the shed. But you're learning what all that stuff's for, aren't you? <laughs> you're 100% realizing when you went and grabbed the white flux when you should have been grabbing the yellow flux, oh, that's why there's a difference between those two, right? <laughs> because he made me go back and get the right stuff. Now I know what the right stuff is, so I don't do that again. Because that is actually essential knowledge. Even if you don't realize you're learning, you are. Um, so those sort of programs are just so important. And so what I wanted to do here um, and really what I, I've been working and developing is I'm 100% staying in the industry I'm in. I'm still going to be that lean manufacturing engineer. I'm still going to be selling equipment. I'm still going to be helping modernize plants. But I had to have, because this was the thing that was missing so much, I had to create this training program. And, and I did it. Like I saw the issues and it's like, okay, we're spending the time. We did it. We've got classes. I have trained nine people to be sewing machine mechanics this month. Um that is still a drop in the bucket compared to what they need, but it's a start. And I'm the only one in this company. When I say I, I haven't trained anybody. My mechanics trained somebody. But the programs that we're putting together in this company, like it's a start. And it's starting to fill this. 
And I want to build it out and I want to grow it. And I want to extend this opportunity to people that are transitioning from the military. So when they're walking through that job sphere and they're seeing bus driver and they're seeing financial advisor and they're seeing, you know, all of this other stuff that maybe they can see, Hey, sewing machine mechanic. And, maybe and that's why they, and we wanted to help you, Caleb. I mean, because, yeah. because th there's no more important mission, man. Absolutely. Because that, it, this is not going to be something we're going to be transitioning thousands of people here, but I know like some of the best mechanics I deal with are military veterans. And it makes perfect sense because the skills a mechanic needs for this are the stuff that junior soldiers in the army are so good at, or the Marine Corps, or the Navy, because every single infantryman, every single air force uh, person that works in a flight line, anyone that works in a nuclear submarine or a destroyer, they all have preventative maintenance. They all have equipment that they're being told they have to take care of. And they at very least understand the basics of how machines work and they understand how to problem solve. So when you point them in an entire factory, and say, all of this equipment here, all of it, you're going to have to take care of it. You're going to have to take care of the knives. You're going to have to take care of the tables. You're going to have to take care of the sewing machines. You're going to have to take care of the ceiling fan. You're going to have to take care of everything that breaks down in here. Half the time, you got to take care of the forklift too. Um, and we expect you just to not complain about this and just start working. Like find what's broken and make it not broken anymore. And that's your job. And stop it um, from breaking. Yes, and then stop it from breaking, like make it break less. Um, so it's just, it's such a fantastic opportunity. So I, I really want to get started in the sewing machine mechanic, but there's other stuff I want to do. So I'm going to tap into the, the networks that I have for these experienced professionals. So I really want to do some of the electrical stuff as well. Because of my time in General Electric, I happen to know a lot of these tradesmen that retired really around COVID when they're starting talking about furloughing them. It's like, okay, well, I'm not coming back. And now it's, they're a year into the retirement, they're sitting around bored. And I'm like, hey, you wanna come back for one week, a quarter and, and teach a bunch of young people how to run a power substation? You wanna teach someone how to bore scope a turbine? You wanna teach someone how to do an inspection on a wind turbine? Because every one of those wind turbines that you see popping up everywhere, they need to get inspected. And it is expensive. You wanna talk about probably no rates. And, and we've seen the Fed so far. There's probably no long-term plan to make sure that stuff gets maintained. Oh, we just stood them up. See, promise, right. delivered. Okay, yeah. what are you going to do? How are you going to keep them running for 50 years? What about Absolutely. the bird strikes? Like, oh, well, oh, somebody, because there was no maintainer thinking about any of right. that stuff. Absolutely. Because there, there's this idea out there that throwing cash at a problem will take care of it, but it won't. It's still, that cash has to go to the person that will actually take care of the problem. So if you are that person who can actually take care of the problem, then you get all the cash they threw at it. So when they, if you just take like those wind turbines, for an example, like every government out there is like, we need more wind, right? Because we need to reduce our dependency on all of this foreign oil for very real geopolitical reasons, as well as environmental issues. Like we don't need to be moving this much stuff over the oceans anymore. Okay, what's your plan for disposing of these things when they're into their service lives? Who's going to build them? Because constructing those things is let's say interesting. <laughs> There's other words I could use. Um, that who's going to maintain them? Who's going to keep them? So when you put in a turbine that's supposed to be producing, you know, three megawatts of power, well, it's not going to keep that if you don't keep it lubricated. Like it's going to be less and less efficient as the grind builds up and as it gets less efficient and as the software gets outdated and someone has to be maintaining all of this. And there's these wind turbines and all these remote areas all over the place. And there's not a mechanic that lives next to them. So who's the person who can get out of bed, 
go travel to North Dakota, go travel to Wisconsin, go fix all of this shit. And if you are that person, you can make a lot of money. And guess what? You don't need a college degree. In fact, I would prefer you not to have a college degree if I'm hiring that sort of person. Because I would prefer someone who is good with tools, good with their hands, can figure out his stuff. So who I'm really looking to hire? An army sergeant. An AV6. A missile tech from the Air Force. They make really good mechanics. They really do. I've, I've run into several missile techs in the civilian world. And they're not taking care of missiles. But guess what? They're very detail-oriented for people who know how to handle the mechanics, the electronics, and they know how to not mess up because they're used to working it with bombs still attached. And there's nothing that ensures you're going to do a good job, like if you're working for the guidance system in a 2,000-pound bomb, right? You're going to do it right. <laughs> oh, man. So as we as you go, like, I mean, just to kind of bring this back, what would be one of my first steps when I'm transitioning to try to get one a hold of you or two decide what I'm really you know, excited about. So what I think, what I think we owe you first, and this is where we're, we're working with vets to PM on is we want to get a curriculum out there. Like we want to get that initial sales pitch with the information of what you need. That just sort of describes what the job is. Um, and I'm drawing this and a lot of my experience coming out. You see all these opportunities that we talk a lot about how the veteran communicates with the employer. I think equally important is how the employer communicates with the veteran. It was very difficult looking at most of these jobs and just understanding what I'm going to be doing. So I want to get you guys a curriculum of what does this career look like? And because it's important for everyone to get the right fit for these jobs, someone who wants to do this. So we get that information to you, then we'll start getting it broadcasting and getting it out. And the way I see this working is there will be a program where we have a employer already lined up because there is a lot of employers in the United States who very much need these mechanics. So these employers are going to raise their hand and say, I want you to send me a mechanic. Um, once we have vetted that employer, we made sure they're an honest, like correct employer that is, is going to take care of people. Then you'll do some initial mechanic training with us. So you will work with my senior mechanics. We've got two of them with over 30 years of experience. They are fantastic people good at their trade. They will work with them, teach them how to do it. It will usually look like a one-week course where they're going to prepare you very specifically on the type of machines you're going to be working on for the next three months or forever if you decide to stay with that company for a long time. Because sewing companies are very traditional. Like they, a lot of the people they hire stay there for 30, 40 years. Um, or you may move around. Either way, you're going to get training on specifically what they do. So if I'm training you to go to a company that makes flags, you're going to be trained in the very specific equipment. So single needle and double needle lock stitch machines, hemming machines, the things you need to do to make flags. Um, you're going to get that training and then you're going to go into that plant and start working as what we call a junior tech. So what a junior tech's job is, is you are the dispatch mechanic. So you're going to go out when the machine breaks, you are going to identify what happened, what went wrong with it? Fix it if it's something easy, because 80-20 rules, very much a thing. 80% of the time, it's something really fast, something really stupid. You get it fixed, you get that machine back up and running. And the other 20% of the time, you assess it, you hand it over to the senior mechanic. And then you stay with the senior mechanic and you learn as you watch him fix it. Because during that three months, not only are you working in that plant, you also have the connection to the outside mentor, which is our team. So you can reach out to them, without it getting back to your employers, without worrying about looking silly, without worrying about 
there's this whole problem in trade skill where people don't want to teach younger people because they're worried about being replaced. Well, that's not a problem if you don't work in the same company, right? You can't take their job. So you've got that mentorship network and you stay as that and you grow and you develop. And then once you're done with that three months, either you stay with that company or you can go get a job anywhere you want because there's a ton of companies that are desperate for it. Think just south of Nashville, you've got the whole automotive industry. There's so much sewing that goes into cars. There's just a ton of it. Um, and, and, and don't think it's not a tech job either. People think of this as some old traditional thing. A customer that I have, they make exoskeletons. Those big fancy suits that you like you, you lock on. Well, guess what an exosuit includes? A suit. Someone still has to sew their traditional, comfortable, like how you wear, like take all of this electronics and hydraulics and muscles that goes around a human body still has to be in a frame that a human body can wear comfortably, which means you still need to sew all the straps and harnesses and everything else. So something like that is still very much a tech job. So it's not like it's a backwards dying industry. You get to work with computers. You get to work with programming. You get to do new and exciting and awesome stuff as you're developing out. Lockheed Martin building the F-35. Well, guess what an F-35 pilot sits in? A chair. A very fancy chair, <laughs> a very, very fancy chair, but it's a chair and it's sewn and they need that equipment to take care of it. Beautiful. Well, as we uh, begin to wrap this up, are there any final thoughts for the transitioning veteran in mind? Something that, you know, you went through when you transitioned to help, you know, remake yourself. It may not be manufacturing for everybody, but there's probably some universal advice you could give. For the, one of the things I'd say for universal advice is don't assume that just because you're walking a specific path, that is the path you're locked into. Um, I think that is a, a major headspace trap for a lot of veterans when they come out and they're used to being locked into career choices. And you're not. If you are in a career and you are unhappy, change it. And that I, I, I talk to way too many people that are stuck for years and years and their entire life and a career they are unhappy with because they didn't have the, the op well, you can say it if they didn't have the courage, they didn't have the opportunities, they, they, didn't, they didn't make the leap and just say, I'm not happy, I want to go do something else. Because like that finance job I was in, I was doing okay, I was making a salary, no one was gonna fire me, I was producing, but I was miserable. Change. Make that leap because it is too easy to get caught in the idea. And how many people introduce themselves and say, hey, I am Caleb. I am an engineer. No, I'm just Caleb. I can be an engineer if I want to be an engineer, but I don't have to be an engineer. I am just Caleb. I can be what I want to be. So that is like the biggest advice I would give to a transitioning veteran is try something out. And if you hate it, don't do it go do something else because there's a world of opportunity out there. Great advice. Great advice. Doc, anything for the, for the group or for Caleb? I can't follow that guy, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's good. It was really cool. I knew as soon as we got started, man, this would be a really good show with the both your energies. So I, I can't wait for it to get out into the hands of uh, the MTA nation. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. This has been a fantastic opportunity. Uh, Doc, I want to thank you again for everything you did for me, uh, both back in uh, 2018 and now. 
Um, I've been in this position. One of the first things I did when I came out is I went and I got my PMP 3 u um, Can't say I've used it quite as much as I thought it was going to, but it was a fantastic thing to have in the tool belt. It does open doors. And it was just a fantastic introduction into project management and into the civilian works, of course. So, Doc, you've got a great team. Uh, really appreciate everything you've done for both me uh, and the veteran community as a whole. Thank you. Well, you know, I we just we couldn't be more proud of you, man. And this, the, you know, they talk about paying it forward, but this is what it looks like in real life. Caleb goes through the program, and I tell vets all the time, and you said it, Caleb. Man, you don't have to figure out what the hell you're going to do for the rest of your life and retire a second time. Just figure out what you're going to do next. Right. And if you find out 18 months in that that ain't it, then go find the next thing that you're going to do next. You don't have to retire from it. That that loyalty, that commitment that we had when we had the uniform on, man, out here in the city, dude, they pay you to win rings. If you're not winning a ring with a team, go play for a different team. You know what I mean? Like, so for you, you come out, you take the thing, you find something, you're like, hey, I'm successful, but it's not really what I want. I'm going to pivot a little bit. And now look at you helping generations of people in different parts of the economy that people didn't even know still existed. And I mean, that's how it all works, man. That's yeah. the interconnected. That's the human tribe of all of this. So couldn't be more proud of you, dude. You're just, you're freaking Godzilla stomping through Tokyo, man. Love it, dude. Crushing it. Thank you. I, I appreciate it, Doc. Uh, and yeah, it, true. I wouldn't have even thought this was there. If you'd have told me I'd have been back in 2022 talking about sewing machine mechanics, I'd have been as confused as you were. Because <laughs> this wasn't where I was going either. Um, so, no, thanks. Thanks again. This has been fantastic. And JB, right. as always, dude, thank you so much for keeping this herd of cats all moving in the same direction, brother. Thank you for tuning in and spending a bit of time with us at the Military Transition Academy powered by Vets to PM. If we piqued your interest, but you want more details, please head over to the website vets2pm.com and see if we can help prepare you for a better tomorrow or a future meaningful and lucrative career.